I think most of us have made our way back, so if you guys don't mind, I'll borrow your attention for the next few minutes here together. Uh, those of you who weren't in the room just a minute ago, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. I also want to make sure and give you a disclaimer this morning. Uh, I don't see any super duper young kids, but I want to make sure that you're aware. I try to always give you a heads up. Uh, the content today is going to be based around our modern concept of identity and how our culture answers that question. If you have been under a rock for the last 20 years, uh, the primary factor in secular identification is typically sexual, sexual orientation, gender. So we're going to navigate those issues today. I'm not going to tell you any explicit stories or do anything that would make you blush, I don't think. Uh, but I want to make sure you're aware. Normally, this is not a topic that comes up on a weekly basis here at True North. And it's something I'd want to be aware of if I was a parent in the room. And so I'm just letting you know. So uh, this is the second week that we're going to be navigating a four-part series in total that's called Imago Dei. Imago Dei is a, a two Latin words that go together that tell us about a doctrine of the church. Uh, a doctrine, if, you're, if you've heard that word thrown around and don't know what it means, is a doctrine functions like a pillar, an idea pillar. A pillar made up of a concept or an idea or a statement or a position that the church has held for a very, very long time. So there are no new doctrines. That's kind of a helpful way to think about this. I often think of doctrines as carved from marble, like the pillars and the ruins of ancient pantheons and things of that nature from the Greco-Roman world. These ideas are similarly old and have similarly stood the test of time. The doctrine of Imago Dei, if we were to translate that into English, it means the image of God. And it tells us that you and I, not because we are Christians, but because we are human, we bear in ourselves the image of God. Now, what is that image? Is it a Polaroid picture? No, not so much. It's not so much a sketch or a drawing. It's sort of like a shadow. It's a hint. It's the fingerprints of or the aroma of God himself. We spent 40 plus minutes last week navigating what that means, how it works, and we built that theological base camp of defining Imago Dei out of the book of Genesis and a little bit of the book of Exodus as well. If you missed that, I think you'll still be able to benefit from this morning's teaching, but I would encourage you, considering that that's foundational to today and the next, three, or the next two weeks after today, I consider you go back and just find a way to watch that, listen to it. It's on our website. It's on our Facebook page. We have a podcast feed of sermon audio. We try really hard to make that stuff easy for you guys to access. Uh, there's no ego wrapped up in that recommendation. I just want to make sure you have access to the foundational t the teaching, the orientation that we did a week ago that will help kind of unlock some of the meaning of what we're going to navigate today. Uh, in summary, we de defined Imago Dei with two statements. I gave you two sentences that I think help sum up and clarify for us what the ramifications or the applications of the doctrine of Imago Dei are in our lives. So we said this last week. We said, first of all, that human beings created in God's image are intrinsically valuable. Now, the reason that I have to use the adjective intrinsically, maybe that's an adverb, I don't know. You can t email me. But the reason I have to put intrinsically in there is because the world that we live in doesn't believe this is true. The world that we live in believes that the value that you have, whether it's in your family or your friend group or the just society in general at your job, whatever, that your value is something that you create. You build value over time, that by gaining expertise or skills, by excelling in project management or team leadership, that suddenly you become more and more valuable and then your pay increases and people respect you more. And the, the idea kind of there would be, if you've lived a good life and made good choices, then great, you're gonna have great things. And if you haven't done those things, you've lived a poor life and you've made poor choices, then you're gonna have that kind of life forever. You're, you're not gonna be acknowledged, you're not gonna be considered valuable. The Bible totally rejects that idea. The Bible communicates to us that because you and I have the image of God in us, we are valuable to God. And that's sort of where we get the second statement from, that human life then, regardless of perceived quality, is intrinsically sacred. 
sacred meaning not just valuable to each of us, that's what the statement makes, that I value you and you value me because we bear the image of God. Sacred means that we are valuable to God himself, that God has a vested interest in your life, in you as an individual. And again, this is not only true for Christians. Becoming a Christian does not increase your value in God's eyes. You were valuable, you are valuable enough for him to pay the price for your sin and open the way into faith before you had ever asked him to do that, before you'd ever even heard that you had a sin problem or that there was a gospel out there that could fix it. That doesn't mean that people who have come to know Christ live their lives exactly the same as those who have not. It means that at the most basic value level, we are intrinsically valuable because God has put his image on us and our lives are sacred because we bear the image of God. That's our base camp. That's where we're going to start this week. We're going to go back and start there again. Next week, we're going to start there again on the fourth week of this series. So you can kind of think normally a four-part series builds on itself week to week to week. We're going to take that foundation and we're going to build three different parallel offshoots off of it. And the first of those will be today. So here's the two questions related to identity that I'm going to do my best to answer for you in the next few minutes that we spend together. If you're taking notes, these would be worth writing down. If you don't catch them both, you'll see them again at the point that I answer them in today's message. The first question is, what does Jesus want for people who identify outside of the created order? Well, what do I mean by the created order? You'll have to go back and listen to last week's sermon. We talked about the way God made people, what made him want to make them, what the purpose of people is on the earth, how God designed us, how he, the, kind of the blueprints got rolled out and then managed, how unique that is, separate from the rest of creation. We drew three different distinctions for humanity that separate humanity from the rest of creation. All of that is the created order. What we mean when we say the created order is the way God made things and the way he intended for them to stay. Now, newsflash, this is kind of a, I guess, a spoiler for you if you've never been to church before. Things as they are now are not the way that God created them to be. We don't live in a world that perfectly reflects God's will. We live in a world that mostly doesn't do what God wants and mostly does do what God does not want. And so we shouldn't be surprised, as we'll talk about at length this morning, when we encounter people around us who say, I don't fit into that sort of binary category of male-female, or I don't identify myself primarily the way the Bible does as either dead in my sin or alive in Christ, etc., etc., etc. We want to figure out what we're supposed to do with people who have rejected the most basic ideas that God has presented to humanity about themselves. Because if you reject God's concept for what you were created to do, what your purpose is, why you're here, you'll never find the right answers to questions like, how can I become happy? You'll never find answers to questions about how you can be in right relationship with other people, how you can have a sense of identity or purpose or meaning or a future or real hope. So that's the first question that we want to answer is, let's start with Jesus. What does he want? And then because the local church is supposed to be made up of Jesus' people, what then do churches do to show the gospel to those same kinds of people who identify themselves as existing outside of the created order? These are heavy questions. Uh, they're going to be a little bit challenging. We're going to navigate a lot of Bible together this morning, but I'm excited and I feel confident based on last night's service that we can get this done together. So what I want to do for you is invite you to turn to Romans 1 and give you a little bit of background. If you haven't headed that direction yet, you've got maybe two minutes to get there. Romans chapter 1 is the Apostle Paul's opening theology. It's his foundation. It's the sort of the basement level of any argument he wants to make about who Jesus is or how salvation works or what's wrong in the world. When we pick it up, where we're going to this morning, in about verse 18 of Romans 1, the Apostle Paul has moved us from the creation story, which is what we read a week ago in Genesis chapters 1 and 3 and 9 and Exodus 3. He's moving us past that point, and he's trying to help us understand how does a world that started perfect like that wind up the way that our world is right now? 
And he moves pretty quickly, but he has a nice logical flow where he moves from A to B and from B to C and from C to D. What you're going to notice about Paul's argument is that he understands sexual sin, which in our setting, our modern 2024 world, is how people often identify themselves. They would argue that their sexuality or their gender is like core to who they are, and therefore finding out what that's supposed to be, embracing it, and then demanding that the world acknowledge it is sort of the only way that anybody knows how to exist anymore. Paul's going to help us understand how that happened. Because when you read the book of Genesis, that doesn't seem to be the most important thing in God's mind. When he creates man and woman, he doesn't spend very much time at all talking to them about whether or not they're going to be this gender or that or this sexuality or that. He gives them lots of other things to focus on. So Paul's answering the question that kind of hangs in the air where we go, if we started in this great place, how do we wind up where we are now? He's going to pivot then, as you'll see, from sort of sexual deviance into a manner, all manner of other kinds of sins. That doesn't mean that when sexual sin enters a community that it necessarily breeds all these other kinds of sins. I think what Paul's trying to argue is, is that sexual sin uniquely involves your mind and your spirit and your body. It's holistic. And so in that way, when you've given yourself over to it, it's much easier for you to then convince yourself or justify doing all kinds of other things that aren't good for you and aren't, for anyone, aren't good for you or the people around you along the way. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we'll have the words for you on the screen or you can read from your own Bible. Here is Paul's theological treatise on how a good world went bad. He says, the wrath of God now is revealed, meaning we know that God is not happy from heaven against all ungodliness, not just random people, against all unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Not just people who do wrong, but people who say, well, wrong isn't really wrong, it's actually right. This is the same problem that shows up in the first couple of pages of your Bible when Satan tempts Adam and Eve. His argument is not, well, God got it wrong and we know better. His argument is, did God get it wrong? Could we know better? Those kinds of kind of pulling, picking questions are very much what's going on in the culture around you and I today. We don't necessarily have these strong ironclad arguments that go against God's way. We just have enough doubt. We just have enough suspicion, enough selfishness sort of blended all together to justify questioning God and finding our own path forward. Paul goes on to say, this is true. We understand that the wrath of God is revealed because what can be known about God is plain to people. Now, that may feel surprising to you. You may have lots of questions about who God is and how he works and where he came from. Did he come from anywhere? Is he going anywhere? How does all of this work? The argument Paul is making is not that looking at the mountains is the same as going to seminary. You're going to learn two very different things about God depending on which of those you choose. His argument is looking at the mountains, looking at the sky, looking at the birds, things that even Jesus called upon again and again in his ministry to teach and explain. Paul says those things have enough of God's fingerprints on them that they spark something inside of you that says, I think there's someone bigger than me behind all of this. And Paul seems to think that that's enough of a reason, that that little bit of acknowledgement of God's presence is enough of a reason for you and I to want to know who that person is and to live according to their way. He goes on to say that God has made this plain to everybody because since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, these things have been clearly seen, Paul says because they are understood through what has been made, through creation. So then people are without excuse. You don't get to say, I never knew, I never heard, Paul says. He seems to think that there's something wired into you. I would argue it's the image of God that you bear that's designed to acknowledge the presence of God all around you and in the world. For although people knew God, they chose not to glorify him as God, nor did they give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless hearts were darkened. In other words, when you abandon God, things don't go well for you. They get worse. 
even your senses and your ability to understand right and wrong changes and warps over time. This is true for individuals, but Paul is talking big picture here. He is speaking about how a civilization of people could over millennia downgrade and downgrade and downgrade. He goes on to say that although these people who embraced these senseless things claimed to be wise, they raised their hands and said, we found a better way than God's way. In fact, they became fools. Why? Because they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings. Or worse, or they worshiped birds, or they worshiped four-footed animals or even reptiles. Think back to God's charge to humanity in Genesis 1 and 2. We read it a week ago. He says, I'm gonna make people to be in charge of these things, to rule over the fish. Remember, I told you that story that I had that little drawing of me as the fish king in my Bible. What Paul is saying is that would actually be better than what we've done. What we've done is we've said, well, there's something so amazing about a fish that that fish must be God. And we have inverted the created order. We've taken God's pinnacle of design, humanity, and we have lowered it underneath everything else that has been made. And we've submitted ourselves to junk and stuff and nature. And so Paul is saying, don't be surprised that things have gone poorly for us. We are reading the instruction manual upside down. We ought not be surprised when our little Ikea life that we're trying to cobble together isn't going the way that it's supposed to, if you know what I'm saying. We've read the instructions wrong. We've believed a wrong way of living. And so what has God done in verse 24? Because of these things, because of our actions and our activity and what we love and what we want, God has given people over to the desires of their hearts and what do our hearts want? They want impure things. Now we dishonor our bodies among ourselves. You see the logic that Paul is tracing. It starts with your mind. You embrace something as, well, it may not be for me, but I suppose it's okay for other people sometimes somewhere. We open up this new category of a way to be, of a way to define ourselves, of a way to practice our human nature or even our sexuality. Then that begins to infect us over a long period of time until some of us wake up one morning and go, I'm not just open to that, it's what I want now. My heart has moved and changed. And then eventually, when your mind has decided that something is good and your heart longs for that thing, you go get it. And that's what Paul is saying has happened here at the end of verse 24. Finally, the last step is we drug our bodies, these things that were designed to be this glorious tool set to interact with creation. We drug them down into the mud and we dishonored ourselves. Here's how that works. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. And then here's Paul's little, pardon my language, but kind of his righteous middle finger to the world. He's saying, who is blessed forever? You guys got it wrong about God, but if we're even gonna talk about God, I'm gonna just insert that he's still blessed and amazing and holy and glorious and good, amen. And then he jumps right back into classroom mode in verse 26. He says, for this reason, because we rejected God, God gave us over to dishonorable passions. And what does that look like? Well, one example in Paul's world is homosexuality. He says their women exchange the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And likewise, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what should not be done. And now what happens to a civilization like this? They are filled with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, malice. They are rife with envy, with murder, with strife, with deceit, with hostility. They have become gossips, slanderers, haters of God. 
They are insolent. They are arrogant. They are boastful. They contrive all sorts of evil. In other words, we have just been inventing new ways to get it wrong over and over again. Disobedient to our parents, senseless, breaking covenants, heartless, and worst of all, worst of every accusation that the Bible can make about you, ruthless. What does Paul mean by that, heartless and ruthless? He means you have become like an animal. The work that you began to lower yourself under the creation has succeeded. You got the thing that you've been looking for, and now you are so driven by your passions that you commit animal acts against each other. The violence, the lust, the secrecy, the backstabbing, these are not exemplary of God's image in you. They are part of the created order that belongs to the beasts. And yet we've adopted those ways of being from the animals that we've spent our time worshiping. Now maybe you're thinking, I've never bowed down at the feet of my cat and said, praise you, you are the God of this household. But what you have done is you have worshiped the image of another person. You have liked an image that a person posted of just their body. You've gone out and found ways to change and warp the shape and the look and the color of your body and your skin. You may have changed your accent. You may have changed your hairstyle. You may have bulked up. You may have lost weight. You've gone out of your way to take this vehicle that you were given to experience the world that God made and turn it into something worthy of worship. And it was never God's intention for you. Now, the right response to that is not to just slink further into the shadows out of shame. The right response is to go, but God has done something in my life. He has intervened, and so now I have a choice to make. I can continue on the path that I started walking automatically because of the world I was born into, or I can go a different way. And we're going to get there in just a minute. But the point that I want to make for you now is that there is a created order, and the Apostle Paul seems to believe, which means I believe it too, that getting that created order wrong is the beginning of all kinds of other ramifications and consequences of evil in your life. He finishes these verses by saying, although they fully know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they also approve of those who practice them. This has become corporate for us. That's why I keep using the word civilization. This is about a culture of people. This is not one guy who got it wrong and made Paul mad enough that he wrote about him in the book of Romans. Paul is saying that we've reached a point where we're not just committing acts of awful darkness in secrecy alone. We've come out into the light and said to one another, that is what you should do. That's right. You do you. Go find yourself. Go on your exploration adventure. Look deep within yourself and figure out who you are. Dig that thing out. Wear it like a badge, and then it'll be our job to acknowledge it. We have no choice. We could never challenge you if we think you're wrong. It's our job to simply say, okay, if that's what makes you happy, then go for it. Paul is saying, what a great way to destroy the world. What a great way to ruin what God has done. I'll say this to you in a different way. There's a great book that I read about a year and a half ago by a guy named uh, Carl R. Truman. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's more of an academic book, not that you guys couldn't read it, but I just want to let you know what you're getting yourself into. Here's a quote from that book that I find to be very helpful. Here's how Carl Truman interprets this same process that Paul saw happening in the Greco-Roman world as being very present in the 2020s here in America. He says, right now, the expressive individual has become the sexually expressive individual. That's how we've moved. We've moved from everybody just expressing themselves that now there has to be something sexual to the nature of how you express yourself. And education and socialization are now to be marked not by the cultivation of traditional sexual interdites and taboos. In other words, no longer can anybody tell anybody how things ought to be, but instead... Now, the abolition of those things and the enabling of pansexual expression, even among children, is the way that we've fully adopted this perspective. He knows his audience, so he says one might regard this change as obnoxious, 
but it reflects the logic of expressive individualism in the sexualized world that is essentially the progeny or the output of the consummation of Marx-Freud nuptials. In other words, when you take Marxism and marry it to Freudian psychology, what you get is people who say, everything is meaningless and therefore I'll just express myself however I want till I die. I can't think of a line of thinking that's more opposite to the gospel than that. That all that matters is what's right in front of my face, that my body and my mind and my spirit are resources to be burned up and spent before I run out of time, and then who cares what happens after that? The gospel speaks the opposite truth, that our lives are meant to be filled with self-control and discipline and the fruit of the spirit so that we step into eternity prepared to be with God forever because we'll never die. The total opposite of the way the world is preaching and teaching. So here's the primary lie that I believe our culture is teaching us is teaching our children, is teaching our students, is anybody who's online. This is what you hear and see all around you. Here's the lie of identity. That until a person has fully explored and defined their own sexuality and gender, they are incomplete. You don't get to be a person until you know who you want to sleep with and how you identify. You're incomplete. You're immature. You're still a child. Part of stepping into adulthood now is not gaining a skill or going off to school or buying your first home or getting married. Now stepping into adulthood, stepping into the fruition of your personhood is knowing how other people should refer to you and who you want to sleep with and where you identify on some kind of gender spectrum. That's the new way to become a grown-up in the world that we live in. And it's a lie. How do I know that that's a lie? Because what that forces you to do is take your sexuality, which is a facet of who you are, and hear me say loud and clear, churches have probably done a pretty terrible job in the last hundred years of helping you know how to navigate your sexuality as a Christian. We've sort of treated it like it's gross or it's nasty or it's embarrassing and we don't touch it and we should because God designed it, it's his plan. But what this lie requires you to believe is not that it's just part of you, but that it's central to who you are. That until you figure this out, you can't be a person of value. You can't be a person who's worth anything. And that once you do find it out, it becomes the primary way that you navigate through the world. The reason I can say with authority that that's a lie is because God tells us what is at the core of our identity. And it's never our sexuality or gender. It's either life or death. That's what is at the core of our identity. It's either light or darkness. It's either good or evil. Our enemy loves to convince us, to tempt us to believe that smaller, less important parts of us are actually at the core. It's in the same way that Satan tempts us to believe that we make better gods than God himself would make. He tempts us to believe that small parts of us are everything and who we are. But here's the reality, my friends. Even if that was true, let's just go to that place and let's accept that argument hypothetically for a second. Even if your gender and sexuality were the primary way that God wanted you to think about yourself and navigate life, it would still be merciful of God to demand that you surrender those things to him. If God is loving and the gospel is the only way into life, then for God to not demand 100% surrender regardless of what that is in your mind, whatever thing it is that you're scared to let go of, if God refuses to demand it from you, then he's not actually leading you into life. He's saying, keep that awful festering splinter in your foot and we'll just ignore it and you'll just limp through life. For God to be loving, he has to say, I know this is gonna hurt and you're not gonna like it and I get where it came from and I'm not mad at you about this, but we've gotta fix it. It's got to get better, because I have something far better in mind for you than that you limp through life with this wound. Now, that's not hypothetical. I don't know how well you know Jesus of Nazareth, but he starts his ministry by demanding exactly that. His opening words on the scene in ancient Israel are telling everybody who can hear him, change your mind. 
The word is uh, where we get kind of meta from. If you're familiar with kind of meta as a cultural word, essentially Jesus is saying, change the way you think about the way that you think. (laughs) Repent, that's what repent means. I'll show you for yourself. In Mark chapter one, verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee and he began to proclaim the gospel of God. And here's what he said. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near, so repent and believe the gospel. Who was Jesus speaking to? Was he only talking to his 12 disciples that we all love and know? No, he was yelling this out to anybody who would hear him, anywhere. And he wasn't just shouting it across the countryside in Judea, he was shouting it down through history to us. This tells us that Jesus' gospel is so much more than what his contemporaries thought that it was. His peers thought that he came to perfect Judaism and make all people obedient Jews. Not at all. What Jesus came to do is invite anybody from any walk of life to lay everything down and to be instantly forgiven by God because of the sacrifice that Jesus made, his life, his death, and his resurrection, that's the gospel, and in exchange for letting go of whoever you used to be or whoever you wish you were or whoever you're trying to make yourself into, Jesus will make you someone brand new. So that doesn't just mean that people who used to hit their wives stop hitting their wives when they meet Jesus. It doesn't just mean that people who were addicted to drugs stop smoking crack and doing whatever else they were doing when they meet Jesus. It doesn't mean that the liars quit lying. It doesn't mean that the stealers quit stealing. It includes those things, but it's not just that. It also means that whatever was wrong with your identity gets pulled into Jesus' orbit and changed. So this is where we begin to find the answer to the first question that we have. Our first question is, what does Jesus want for people who identify outside of the created order? The answer is, he wants repentance, He wants surrender to him. Why? Because that's where they will find joy and restoration. You and I have bought the lie that the primary issue with people who practice some other kind of gender or sexuality than the one that we are comfortable with is that gender or sexuality. We believe that if we could just change that or outlaw it or convince them to to do it differently, that their life would get back on track. That's not true. That's actually the work of God's enemy, to believe that some other thing other than their eternal standing before God is what's most important about them. We have to be very careful that in the interest of culture war, we don't decide that something that's less important than the main thing becomes our focus in the lives of other people. Jesus isn't primarily approaching transgender people to have a conversation about their gender. He's not primarily approaching people who practice a different form of sexuality that the Bible would refer to as sinful because he wants to just change their sexuality. He is demanding 100% of their entire life in surrender to him. And here's the good news for those of us who've already made that choice. If that's what God wants, that's the same thing he demanded from you, and that means now, even though you probably didn't think so, you have a ton in common with your pansexual, non-binary neighbors. You have the same problem that they have. So you guys meet each other at the cross where the solution is the same. Their biggest problem is not their gender. Their biggest problem is not their sexual orientation. It is the sin in their heart that has inundated every part of them. It's all the things they're running from as they're trying to find or build a new identity. And the message of the gospel that we get to carry to people like that is not, if you would just start sleeping with the right kinds of people, God would accept you and the church could be a home and a family. No, the the gospel that we share is if you would come to Jesus and give him everything, then he will build and create for you a new life, make you a new creation, and then you'll come into a church that's not just people who are straight, it's people who love Jesus. We have to be very careful that we are not settling for a secondary argument. That is what the world would love for us to do. Because who is the prince of this world? Satan. 
Satan is the prince of a world where he would love to see all of us settle for secondary arguments that never take us anywhere that matters. That would be a great objective in his mind, for us to waste all of our time, all of our clout, and all of our relationships fighting about culture or laws or policies or whatever else instead of fighting the good fight of faith that we might finish well and see other people come to know Christ. So that's where we get this answer. It's Jesus' example. Jesus doesn't have to hone in on one specific sin issue. He opens the way into life and says, lay everything down, I'll take it from you, and I'll give you what you've been looking for. So, the second question then that I told you that we would answer has to do with our specific response. What do we do then? We are not Jesus. We are not able to walk up to a person and say to them, you're healed, your past is managed, it's handled, you've now received salvation, and you have nothing to worry about. We have a story to tell that leads people to make that kind of decision themselves, but there's a little bit of nuance between the way that Jesus would approach somebody with his lordship because he is God and say to them, surrender and repent, and the way that we would navigate this. I want to invite you, if you're willing, to turn in your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 specifically. Normally, by this time in the sermon, I just show you the scriptures and I want you to see them for yourself. This is one of those passages, my friends, that feels like God is pouring molten lava into my bloodstream. There is nothing more exciting, more beautiful than the way that the Apostle Paul is going to lay this out. Because here's what's going to happen. In Romans 1, Paul created sort of a wound. I know he did. We all felt it together, right? That's not comfortable. It doesn't feel good to have to say that a way that a person wants to live that they feel has led them to fulfillment is actually wrong and the worst thing for them. God knows, or excuse me, Paul knows what he's doing. So he creates that argument in which God is judging sin, and he has somewhat let us go and, and run to our own devices. But then Christ appears, and that's the part of Romans that we don't have time to read today. But here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is going to meet that wound that he has identified with the perfect solution and the healing that we need. So if you are willing, go with me now into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and let's hear how Paul seems to understand that Jesus has solved our problems. Paul says, therefore... Because we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. Now, he's talking about Christians here. So maybe you're going, I've never tried to persuade anybody. Well, today would be a great day to realize that that's actually part of the job description if you're following Jesus. He says, but we are well known to God. And I hope also that we are well known to your consciences too. He's writing to this early church in Corinth, pleading with them because they've embraced all kinds of awful sins, some of which are very sexual in nature. Paul is saying, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you. Again, this isn't about convincing you that we've got it right and you've got it wrong. By no means. He says, we are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may be able to answer those who take pride in outward appearance and not in what is in the heart. In other words, what's the argument that he made in Romans 1? What have we surrendered in exchange for God's glory? The image of people, our own image, the image of other created things. Paul is saying it's not just happening in Rome, it's happening in Corinth and it's happening in Anchorage as well. He says, now we have rejected that. We no longer fall in line with those who take pride in the outward experience or appearance. Excuse me. Instead, we take pride in what God has done for us in the heart. Now, Paul goes on to say something pretty interesting here. He says, if we're out of our minds, then it's for God. In other words, if you guys have rejected me, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, and maybe you feel this way about me today, that's fine. If I'm out of my mind, it's not because I have an agenda. I'm not out of my mind because I want to gain followers. I'm not out of my mind because I'm going to run for office later this spring and I'd love to have you vote for me at the ballot box. I'm out of my mind, if I'm out of my mind at all, because I'm following God. I'm only saying to you what God would have me say. I have no other agenda for your life but to appeal to you that God has made this clear and we keep rejecting it. At the same time, Paul says, if we are of sound mind, it's for you that we do that. 
if we are actually making sense, it's also not to gain followers. It's also not to win your votes. It's also not to get you to like us. We're just trying to argue with you enough that you figure out the way this thing works so you can get it right for once. Because it's the love of Christ that controls us. That's where Paul is coming from. Now, that's important to understand because what he's going to say next is a big deal. And if it's coming from just Paul's mouth, if it's just his opinion or just what he thinks, then we ought to dismiss it because it's a little bit scary. It's a big deal. But if it's coming directly from the God of the universe through Paul to us, then it has the potential to be life-changing for us. Here's what he says. He says, we've concluded this, that Christ died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, Romans 1, but live for him who died for them and who was raised. That's a throwback to Genesis 1. Paul's saying that what Jesus wants to do is get you back to where we were in the garden with the first man and the first woman. Just live for God. Just do what God says to do. Live your life with him. So then, Paul says, from now on, we acknowledge no one from an outward human point of view. If you have trouble being around people who are of a different gender or a different sexuality, the Apostle Paul seems to think that part of your Christianity has actually equipped you to ignore those things that you're free to not care. You're free to not even notice. Paul says, starting now, we don't acknowledge people from an outward human point of view, even though we have known Christ from a human point of view. Paul's saying, of course, we all came to know Christ out of our humanity first. He was a good teacher. He was loving. He appealed to us. Now what? Now we understand him spiritually. And you've heard this verse before. So then if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, and what is old has passed away, and look, what is new has come. This is what awaits people who have identity issues when they come to Christ and surrender. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who has now, pardon me, given us the ministry of reconciliation ourselves. In other words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them. Is that what you think Jesus was doing? Have we lost sight of that a little bit, my friends? I want to read that to you again. In Christ, when Jesus was on the earth teaching and walking around and touching sinful people, God was reconciling. He was drawing people in. What was he not doing? Counting people's trespasses against them. He was not counting people's trespasses against them. He wasn't counting people's trespasses against them. That's his way. His way is to not count people's trespasses against them. This is why it's so important to the Apostle Paul that we see each other through spiritual eyes. What does that mean? That's the image of God. When you see a person who identifies differently from you on whatever spectrum, by whatever name that you may have heard or not heard before that moment, you don't primarily accept that about them. You don't have to reject it outright, but you go, no, you're something more than that. I'm going to just skirt that, go around it, go over it. I don't want to have that argument with you. I want you to know that you're an eternal spirit in a body with a mind bearing the image of God. And because those things are true, I value you. I think you're sacred. God has convinced me that because you bear his image, you are immensely valuable. You are profoundly valuable in a way that I can't wrap my mind around. So I'm here not to count your trespasses against you, but to try to reconcile you, reconcile you to the God whose image you bear. I want you to come back home and meet the Father whose name you have, if that's a helpful allegory for you. I want you to get to know the God who designed you. I want you to figure out what his purposes are for you. I don't want you to keep running deeper and deeper into this downward spiral of self-exploration. Do you know what people find when they look inside their souls? Sin. It's what's in us. That's all there is. You'll never find light in yourself. You'll never find hope in yourself. You can't complete yourself. No one else can. God has to make you new. 
And he wants to do that. We talked about that last week, my friends. We bear the image of God. That shows that he was involved at the beginning. But we can be not only made in his image, but remade now into the image of Christ. And that's where the Apostle Paul is going to go next. These are two of the best verses in the whole Bible. So what does Paul say? If this is true, if this is true, and maybe it's too much for you to swallow, but I've accepted it, and it's very exciting to me. If it's true that the work of Jesus was not to condemn those who've trespassed against God, God already did that. A long time ago, when he allowed the world to go its own way, we read that in Romans 1, if the work of Christ, our rabbi, our master, is to seek people out and say to them, I am not primarily concerned with how you have offended me or done wrong in the world, then what happens? Paul says, then we become ambassadors for Christ, which I think means that if we're not doing that, we aren't ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors for moralism. We're ambassadors for conservative values. We're ambassadors for somebody else's agenda. If we are not freely offering forgiveness to the world because of what they have done, Paul says, now we are ambassadors for Christ. It is as though God was making his plea through us. It is as though God was making his plea to the world through us. Are our mouths open or closed? We plead with you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. How is this possible? Because God made the one who did not know sin to become sin for us. So that in him, in Christ alone, we would become the righteousness of God. So the second question that we have to answer is, how can the church best show the gospel to people who identify outside of the created order? And the answer is that we must carefully and graciously introduce people of all orientations and sexualities to Jesus. And as we do that, we must acknowledge their dignity and we must do whatever we can to reconcile them to God. My friends, this will not be easy. It will mostly be rejected outright. You live in a world where most people have seen enough episodes of The Simpsons and South Park to know Jesus' name. They think they know all that they need to know to be equipped to reject him outright. I'll quote Tim Keller here and say that most of us have become inoculated or vaccinated against the gospel by knowing just enough about Jesus to think that we know everything about Jesus and therefore kick him out of our lives. It's very much the scene at the edge of the Sea of Galilee when Jesus heals the demon-possessed man and all the pigs end up dying and the shepherds say, get out of here, get out of here, leave, leave, leave. They don't know Jesus. They saw him do one thing and they didn't like it, and so that's all they need to know. I'm not promising you that attempting to reconcile the world to God will be terribly efficient, that you'll be very good at it, that it will be comfortable. What I am saying to you is that God has designed this thing so that you knowing Christ and speaking about your knowledge of Christ, your relationship with Christ, is the most powerful spoken language that can be introduced into another person's life. The testimony that God has given you of how he saved you, even if you think it is the most cardboard, vanilla, I grew up in a Christian home, blah, 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 blah. No, that's a miracle. And what that says to the people of the world is that they don't have to chase themselves into oblivion. Because like it or not, my friends, people in their early teens to late 20s are exploring sexuality and gender. And they're doing it at a rate that we have never seen on the face of our planet. Even if you're 40 or older and you lived through part of the sexual revolution, where we are now is nothing like that. It's not even a revolution anymore. It's just a wholesale flood. It's the pigs off the cliff into the ocean. That's where we're headed. And if we don't find a way to make a genuine appeal to Christ in the lives of people who are looking inside themselves to find their identity, I'll tell you what they're going to do. It's what they always do. They kill themselves. 
They look inside themselves. They ask the biggest, hardest questions of a soul that is broken, that cannot answer those questions. And they say, well, if I couldn't find it here, the world has told me I'm never going to find it anywhere else, and so I just need to not exist. You and I plead as if God was speaking through our mouths, not holding the wrongdoings of those people against them, but inviting them into mercy. Saying to them, you don't have to figure your sexuality out, come sit in church, put a tie on, look nice, and in six months God will save you. Right now where you are, God is where you are. Christ has died, he's resurrected and on his throne. Repent. You tried thinking the way that you thought things were going to work. How far did that get you? Change the way you think about the way that you think and come to Christ and learn from him. This is the appeal that we make to our world. This is the first and primary thing that we ought to say to anybody who has any issue of identity. We need to stop waiting on laws to change human hearts. Now, I'm not saying don't protect your children. Someone out there probably has an agenda to convince your child of something that isn't true and doesn't go the way of the Bible. Be careful, be prayerful, be very cautious, be gracious and kind, but stand firm where you need to. What I'm saying is that that's a far cry from the whole solution. No law has ever changed a person's heart. Not even God's law has changed a person's heart. It is the love of Christ, it is his compassion and his kindness that leads us to repentance. And we have that story. We don't have to wait anymore. We're not at a loss. We're not scrambling, wondering, what do we, where do I, where do I, what's my solution to this problem? I just met this person at the grocery store and they look like a man, but they want me to refer to him as a woman. Ah, ah, what's my obligation? Which pronoun do I pick? We don't refer to people by their physical attributes anymore. They're a spiritual, eternal human being. Look them in the eye and love on them. Do whatever you can do to communicate the things that no one else ever has, which is why they feel rejected and are on the outskirts of society. Draw them in. That's what reconciliation is. It's restoration that leads to your joy. And that's our work. And I could yell at you about this for another 40 minutes. You can tell that I care, I hope. I hope you care. I'm gonna stop us here for now. I just want you to chew on these ideas, church. I don't have a laundry list of practical applications. There's no big movement you can go out and join. You're in the movement. You're a part of the movement. You're a part of a countercultural, revolutionary way of being that is built on love, and that's it. And so what I hope for you and what I'm gonna pray for you in just a second is that God would compel you in love to be loving, that God would bother you, that the Spirit would prick you and pull you and make you deeply uncomfortable when you would rather have an argument with somebody about whether they're right and wrong than just love them and love them and love them. You love them well, and the day will come where you will have an opportunity to look them in the eye and say, I love you, and I've always thought this was bad for you, and I've stayed the whole time. And I would love to introduce you to a God who's done the same thing in my life. You'll get that chance, but you're not gonna fist fight your way into it. So with that said, let me pray for you. I'd invite you to pray with me, and we're gonna ask, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, May the love of Christ control us. Father, let that be the truth. Whatever else it is that is at the steering wheel of our lives, please kindly boot it out of the way and restore to us a commitment to be controlled by your love. Not to just want to be loving and kind sometimes to people that are like us or whom we already like. You yourself said, even those who don't know God will give bread to their children instead of a snake when they ask. <laughs> so that's a pretty low bar. We want to be the kind of people who will give bread to our enemy, who will love on our enemy, who will primarily be concerned with giving and giving and giving, not taking, not protecting, not defending. Make us like you, Jesus, people who, like you, would follow your example into a world that has nothing to do with you, that wants nothing to do with you, that rejects you outright, and let us follow your example because it is good to do that, to be loving and to be kind. May the love of Christ control us. This is our prayer, Father. We ask you to work in our hearts, inspire us, spirit, to move us toward the people in our lives that we would maybe rather move away from, and lead us in your love. We trust you to do these things in our lives 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to give us an opportunity to...